criminal justice processes operationalized through people, witnesses, detectives, suspects, lawyers, judges, and jurors. The wheels of the system are turned by the mental operation of these actors, memories, recognitions, assessments, etc., etc. Ever since I started, it's always puzzled me how the law refused to recognize this. Welcome to Of Counsel. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law, the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, defenders of the downtrodden, protectors of social order, and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the power of words alone, can shape the laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away the liberty of another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? And how do they balance it all? Court is now in session. All rise. In this episode of Love Counsel, our guest is Alan Gold. For anyone who practices criminal law, Alan Gold is a name you hear often. He has appeared as counsel before all levels of court in Ontario, as well as other provinces, and for over 50 cases in the Supreme Court of Canada. He is certified by the Law Society as a specialist in criminal litigation and was the first chairman of the Criminal Litigation Specialty Committee for five years. In 1993, he was inducted into the American College of Trial Lawyers, received the G. Arthur Martin Award for a contribution to criminal justice in 1997, and Allen is also a past president of the Criminal Lawyers Association of Ontario and a past elected bencher of the Law Society of Ontario. Allen, it goes without saying, is one of the most respected commentators on Canadian criminal law. He is widely published and has lectured extensively on criminal law. Allen's Criminal Law Net Letter which is available on LexisNexis Canada, is read by thousands of Canadian and international criminal lawyers each week. And as you'll hear from the podcast, an essential part of our firm's learning process in making sure that we stay on top of the law. Our exclusive sponsor, LexisNexis Canada, is thrilled that Of Counsel listeners will enjoy a conversation with Mr. Gold today. Mr. Gold's weekly criminal net letter is an invaluable current awareness source exclusively found on Lexis Advanced Quick Law. It covers recent case law and reviews criminal cases from the United States, Australia, and the UK, South Africa, and other countries. Law journals, articles, legislative news, and other items of interest to the criminal defense bar are also summarized in the net letter. Mr. Gold is also the main author of Halsbury's Laws of Canada, Criminal Offenses and Defenses, and Halsbury's Laws of Canada, Criminal Procedure. His latest print publication, The Practitioner's Ontario Criminal Practice, 2019 edition, is slated to be released on November 30, 2018. To place your order for it and to browse a list of his publications, visit lexisnexus.ca backslash Gold. LexisNexus.ca backslash Alan Gold. Finally, a giveaway to our listeners from LexisNexus. When Canada marked its 150th anniversary, LexisNexus published a celebratory book featuring a collection of over 50 essays on major political and historical developments in Canadian constitutional history, written by key commentators and figures, including Mr. Alan Gold. LexisNexus would like to raffle a copy of this stunning book. So to enter your name and visit the draw, 
go to lexisnexus.ca backslash Canada at 150. Once again, it's lexisnexus.ca Canada at 150 backslash Canada at 150. So with that, let's start our conversation with criminal law legend, Alan Gold. So today I am with the legendary Alan Gold. Anyone in criminal law, uh, it's one of the first names that come to mind for anyone I know when I first started into criminal law, Alan was one of the top people that everyone would think of, that people would aspire towards in trying to get their articles. Even as I'm saying this, I can see Alan chuckling a little bit, but it's absolutely true. Anyone listening to this knows who Alan Gold and his contributions and what his contributions are to criminal law. So, Alan, I'll start with a question I ask all of our guests, and that is, how did you get here? What brought you to where you are today as one of Canada's leading criminal defense lawyers? Sean, as I've um, probably bored many of my articling students uh, with a story after a few glasses of wine, it's a very um, fortunate story. I think I'm a very lucky person. What happened was that I went to law school because I couldn't stand the sight of blood, so I couldn't go to medical school. Uh, in my generation, your parents expected you to be either a lawyer, a doctor, an accountant, or a dentist. Dentists were the ones that couldn't get into medical school. Accountants were the ones that couldn't get into law school. So I got accepted at law school, and I decided to go to Queen's, which was absolutely, as the English would say, a brilliant decision because it was a brand, it was a relatively new law school. It already had some good people. People like Don Bain uh, were graduating from Queen's. But because it was a small school, it was easy to get to know the professors. And what happened was that it turned out in first year that I seemed to have a knack for law in the sense that I actually did what you were supposed to do. I, I worked hard. I, I read the, the materials. Uh, I took part in classes. But I especially had a knack for criminal law. So at the Christmas exam in first year, uh, my mark was way higher than any, anybody else's. And I'll just mention that Dave Watt is, was a classmate of mine. So every time I lose a case in front of David, I <laughs> want to remind him that my marks in law school were better than his. But I haven't had the courage to do that yet. So I had a criminal law professor who happened to be have been a classmate at University of Toronto of a gentleman who at that point was one of Toronto's top criminal lawyers. Uh, subsequently, he had some, some various problems, but he was at that point highly recognized. So my law professor simply phoned up this lawyer at Christmas of first year and said, you should hire this person as an articling student. And so I actually had an articling position from that point on. So I finished law school. I, I did very well. Took a year off to supposedly go do a master's of law in England and essentially was truant, so I never completed it because I was busy wandering around Europe. It was the only way I could afford to go to Europe at that point. And came back and articled. And of course, lo and behold, um, Eddie Greenspan was Joe's cousin. And so I'm now in a law office with Joe Pomerant, Joe's brother David, and Eddie Greenspan. And half of my articles, I'm with Michael Maldaver, who had also article with G. Arthur Martin. And turned out that they liked my work, so I stayed on. Eventually, it became um, uh, Greenspan, Golden, Maldaver at one point. It went through various iterations because they say Joe, Joe had some problems. Uh, Mark Rosenberg, of course, came to article. But 
it was just terrific. Then in 1979, I went out on my own. I think Michael left in 1982 to to go out on his own, and that's the story. So I'm really curious about those earlier years because, you know, you describe it just as you lived it. It's just these are the people that I was practicing with. It's, you know, just Michael Moldaver. It's just Mark Rosenberg. But surely you reflect on that now and think there was something really magical there? Oh, abs- absolutely. For example, uh, I learned, uh, I was very lucky to to have the criminal law mentor that I did, Ron Price. Professor Ron Price was his name. Ron took forever to write an article. Why? Because it had to be absolutely perfect. He researched, there, he, he, he anguished over every sentence and then produced a marvelous written product on, on criminal law. Unlike a lot of the stuff that you see now that's kind of done on a weekend. And right. so he taught me the importance of, of, of substance in anything that you produce. Um, and he also sent me one of my first cases, which I'll get to eventually. But then when I went to uh, Joe's office with Eddie, Eddie, of course, was fanatical about work. I can tell you, I remember sitting in um, <laughs> in the waiting room at, uh, I think it was Mount Sinai Hospital. Eddie and I were working on a transcript while his wife was giving birth to one of their kids. Oh my so, yeah, Eddie was obsessed about criminal law, loved it, just worked so hard, and uh, taught me that uh, that I should do that. At that point, he also took over the criminal, Canadian criminal cases headnotes, doing the headnotes for CCCs. And of course, so I got enlisted to help him. It was my pleasure because I learned early on that we're in a commercial marketplace. I need to have something to sell that's better than what other people can sell. And there's only a couple of possibilities. One is your knowledge. Well, knowledge about criminal law comes from reading the criminal code and reading the cases. And I did one of the things that Eddie told me he did. He told me he read Wigmore, all 10 volumes of it. So, yes, I sat down and I read Wigmore, all 10 volumes of it. So I learned early on one of the things is to have a body of knowledge that is better than anybody else's. And the other Part of your product, of course, has to be your various skill sets. And those skill sets consist of your skills in dealing with clients, your skills in dealing with other people in the system, and your skills in courtroom. So that's how I always understood what I was going to do. I was going to develop my knowledge and my skill sets that are appropriate for the practice of criminal law. And so I learned from from Eddie, as I say, to learn as much as possible. So I would read all the head notes, etc., and we got along very well, and uh, he had great cases, et cetera, et cetera. But apropos knowing more than other people, at that point in time, there was a real lag between court of appeal decisions and their publication in the CCCs, because that's all there was at that. So the Ontario Court of Appeal would decide something, and then six months later, it would show up in print. So I started something for the Criminal Lawyers Association uh, called uh, On the Docket. Since I was doing some of the headnotes, we would publish a column in what was essentially then, you know, like a, a mimeograph newsletter that the Criminal Lawyers Association was just starting. So I would publish the important cases that the defense bar should know about right away. 
And that actually turned into the Weekly Criminal Bulletin because Eddie had a connection with Canada Law Book. And I still remember we had this uh, lunch meeting. Why not take these synopses and publish them right away for lawyers? And so that's what they did. And now, you know, and then they developed all the various other summaries. So getting access to these cases right away was always really important to me. So then in 79, when I left Eddie... I had to leave all that work behind, of course. So how was I going to get all the unreported cases right away so that I would know more than other people, okay? So I went to one of the other publishers because at that point in time, the Charter of Rights, people were talking about the Charter of Rights. People were talking about things like unreasonable search and seizure and really didn't know what it meant. One of my advantages is because at Queen's they had brought in a number of American professors, I had a a great affinity for American criminal law. So I had uh, read it and I I kept up on it, etc. So I sort of knew a lot of American constitutional law that the average Canadian lawyer didn't know. So I went to Carswell and I said, look, I'll make a deal. If you send me all the unreported cases, I'll publish an annual review of criminal law. And we agreed on that. And so that's all the 16, 17 volumes up there that I did every year. And the only reason I did it, I mean, there were some royalties, but it wasn't enough to make it worthwhile. It was so that Carswell would send me every unreported case so that I would, could build my body of knowledge. And so the first issue was, of course, essentially a thin volume describing our charter sections in American terminology. So I talked about what unreasonable search and seizure meant, uh, unreasonable delay, etc. So, so I continued that, I think, for 16 or 17 years. And eventually, uh, it, was, it was taking a lot of time. It wasn't worth it. And, of course, the digital world had, had come upon us. I knew uh, Professor Hugh Lawford at Queen's. I'd known Hugh at Queen's. He was a wonderful man. And he, of course, you may or may not know, started Quick Law. And in fact, his efforts produced the search software that is now used by Quick Law, Westlaw, et cetera, et cetera, okay? Why was it developed? Well, he was hired by the Canadian government to do what was called the Treaty Project. At that point in time, everything was on paper, may have been on papyrus for all I know, but Canada didn't know all of the things it was obliged to under its treaties with other countries. And Hugh's job using a computer was now to store, to develop a database of all of Canada's treaty obligations. And so that's how, why he developed the software. Once that was done, it occurred to him, you could digitize case law. And so he started Quick Law in the basement of Queen's University. I, when I was a researcher in the summer, I would have a little office and the treaty project was in the rest of the basement and they were terrific people. So I can't remember the year. It was sometime maybe late 80s, early 90s. I can still remember the occasion. I was actually driving with a gentleman named David Schoenbrucker, who at that time was a lawyer in Toronto. Now he's an appellate counsel for the Department of Justice or whatever name they go under uh, down east in Halifax. And we were driving to an arson case 
And we were talking, somehow we got onto Quick Law, and it occurred to me that if I could do a search one day a week that would produce every criminal case that came into Quick Law that week, I could do the same thing I've been doing with the hard copies. I could read it, right? So I, I got on the phone to Hugh Lawford. I spoke to Hugh. Hugh said, uh, send me a sample. I sent him a sample. And then that letter was born. I want to ask you about that because um, this is something that's very close to me. And of course, you don't know this, but you know when you sort of uh, giggled at the suggestion of, of your impact upon criminal law, I want to explain to you uh, what your net, net letters meant to me. So when I started out as an articling student, I was at Pinkowski's at the time. And I remember the net letters coming in as part of our subscription. Um, and what I started doing as a student is taking each weekly report and curating them myself and depositing them into folders. So, for example, I'd have a search and seizure folder and then a subfolder and subfolder. Well, today in 2018, I think there's about 50,000 folders. And most of those come from your net letters. And I can tell you without um, any hesitation that I really can't imagine how I could have uh, reached the point I have as a criminal lawyer today without having that curated resource. And when you're describing what you have uh, done, what stands out to me is the importance, even from a very early stage, of setting the proper infrastructure of knowledge that ultimately puts you to the point where you can access that as a lawyer, because it's far too complicated to remember everything. Sean, when a client comes in the door, is no time for you to start researching whether what the issues are exactly okay you know the famous proverb chance favors the prepared mind when a client came in the door i already had a database of knowledge and i understood that that was what you had to do in fact you make the point everything i've ever written or done has been for my benefit and the idea that well if it helps me maybe it'll help other criminal lawyers but i don't do it to be, pu- to be published. I do it to self-educate. I said self-educate, not self-medicate. I do that with white wine. <laughs> I do it to self-educate. Right. And in fact, the next evolution was the criminal code. Uh, the publisher came to me. They were the only publisher that didn't have a criminal code. They said, we'd like you to do a criminal code. I said, well, I'm not going to do another code like pe- these people do. They're, they're excellent people. They're excellent criminal codes. I will do it if you tell me something different. So we had a discussion and we got around to discussing what they called the Halsbury model. And the Halsbury model was, it was a digest, but it was a footnoted digest. In other words, you would state a simple proposition and then, so I, I played around with that and I realized, you know, yes, I want to do this. This is a chance for me to go through and read the criminal code, which I haven't done in a long time, and it's changed a little bit since I first started. So I agreed to do it. And that summer, I essentially wrote the first draft of the annotated criminal code in its present form. But again, I did it for me. And I can tell you, one of the advantages of the criminal lawyers listserv is when and this is why I, I never mind someone coming up to me in court or anywhere or phoning as people do ask me a question. Because every time I have to answer a question, I learn something. Okay. And I can tell you comments on the listserv, questions that people have asked me. I, I go look it up and it goes into the next issue, of, uh, next edition of the criminal code. So it's all about self education. That's everything that I do because. 
I like to think that's that's a product that I have that most people don't have, simply because I'm obsessive about knowing everything I possibly can know about about criminal law. I love the puzzles. I, I love the intellectual issues. I love trying to uh, make arguments in support of this position, that position, etc. So I'm very blessed that I'm doing something that I seem to have a skill at doing and that I enjoy doing. And that makes my life so pleasant that I really can't, you know, I I do. I feel extremely lucky. Yeah, and I really uh, admire, you know, you're one of the pioneers in transparency and sharing and, and not just within your net letters, but also you created precedents for criminal lawyers that criminal lawyers rely on all the time. And um, I have to say, though, there is a lot of pushback from what I've seen with a lot of criminal lawyers. I, I've tried to, in, in a very small way, contribute by sharing our own resources in a similar way. But there's often a pushback that we shouldn't be sharing this information as criminal lawyers, that somehow it should be a tightly guarded secret. And, uh, you know, because clients come to us and they're, we're the only ones that convey this information. Since the first days I've been doing this, there's always been camaraderie among the criminal bar. Uh, when I started, there were senior lawyers. It was a pleasure to talk to them, get advice. Uh, Eddie was always on the phone answering questions from from other lawyers. Um, I just I just don't understand that at all. I agree, you don't give them client information, but telling helping them with precedents and legal principles, I, I just I just don't understand any argument against that. Quite frankly. So uh, let me ask you a little bit about advocacy, um, which you have a lot to say, I'm sure. Uh, I'll ask you the question I ask all our guests. If you had an inscription on your desk to read as you're making argument or to remind yourself of a key maxim that you operate on a day-to-day in advocacy, what what might it be? (laughs) Talk slow, be pleasant, watch your bench very carefully. What do you mean by that, watch your bench? For reactions, uh, if they're becoming tense or something, then they don't like what you're saying or they feel you're repeating yourself or something. You, you just watch to see if they're writing down what you're saying. Have you learned um, skills to try and address that? Because, you know, for a younger lawyer in particular, it's very off-putting when a judge is sort of rolling their eyes or spinning in their chair. What do you do to recalibrate and pivot? There's no general rule, although you I think what you do is you try and go back a little bit and perhaps phrase it differently, try and gain less yardage, maybe make it less extreme, the proposition. I think the thing you have to understand is that advocacy is a very organic exercise. Think about when you're young and you're trying to convince your parents to give you the car on a Saturday <laughs> night or something. Right. You know, what are the techniques you use to persuasion? You, you try to reassure them you you uh, reassure them that it was the right thing to do talking to the bench now first of all you have to understand some some cases you're just not going to win uh, so you just do your do your presentation and and i must say english judges seem to be much more understanding of this when you read their judgments you often see them share the idea that sort of counsel did the best they could with the arguments available. And they, they seem much more understanding of that. I think our our courts used to be like that, but they seem to have lost it in recent years. They, I think young counsel get a sense that 
the court is thinking, why are you making this stupid argument, that kind of thing. And, and really, that's not fair to counsel to do that. But in terms of in terms of advocacy, the actual presentation is almost the last step. I mean, the first step is to know everything, to have thought carefully about the key things you want to say, try and work out the best wording for the important steps in your reasoning, and then the advocacy will, will come easily. Is there a piece of advice that you hear repeated often that, whether it's in practice or in advocacy, that, that you think, while common, is erroneous? Don't ask a question you don't know the answer to. No, it should be, don't ask a question that you don't know the answer to unless you have a fallback safe position to neutralize a bad answer, and then you can. But someone once said when I was young, and I I think it's absolutely true, for every argument, you create three arguments. The second best argument is the one you prepare. The, The worst argument is the one you make, and the best argument is the one that's in your head after you've left the court. (laughs) And that's absolutely true. And, and, you know, the French have an expression for it, the spirit on the stairs. So what you try and do, and what I try and do, either trials or arguments, is that when I think I finish my preparation, I actually just lie there. It looks like I'm sleeping, but I'm not. (laughs) I lie there and I go through the whole thing in my head as if it was actually happening. And it always surprises me how often I identify issues that I just hadn't thought of, like, oh, I better make an extra copy of this, or, okay, I better word it this way so that I'm not met with this objection. So essentially, I do a complete mental rehearsal. What you're trying to do is you're trying to do as much of the best argument that you'd have afterwards, but you're trying to get it in advance. So, you know, often a a really good phrase will pop into my head. I write it down. And sometimes you do that two or three times before you actually, you know, if you have a chance to do it two two or three times before. But that's, that's all I do. I try and do a complete rehearsal in my head in advance. And I've, I've always found that to be extremely effective in terms of preparation. Yeah. And I think that's a common trend. I remember as a a uh, summer student, actually, I was summering with uh, Robert Richardson, uh, excellent lawyer, and he said the same thing. You know, he would stare out the window, and I would sort of think as a student, you know, you have a trial in a few hours, <laughs> but he'd be saying the th- same thing. I just need to bring it all in and think, you know, what am I missing? What run, are some of the run problems? through it in advance. Do a rehearsal. Right. Question I have for you, Alan. You know, we live in a day and age now where. A lot of lawyers live and die by social media. They're always out there. They've got a very strong web presence, always on Twitter. I'm certainly guilty of this. But you haven't really engaged in that. Is 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 that a deliberate choice or is it just something you never really decide you needed in your practice? I, um, I've never done it because I've always – it's just my personality. I'm not that forthcoming. And I also – do not think that I necessarily have a great opinion on everything that I need to share with the world, okay? (laughs) In the vernacular, I like to mind my own business, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. But my position has always been that I let my work do my advertising for me. So because I've been blessed with having a number of, of cases that people know about, so people phone me, people refer their friends... I've never gotten into the into the social media. I've, I've, when I started, advertising by lawyers was illegal. It was viewed as unseemly, right. and I think I've always carried that 
that attitude somewhere in the back of my head. I understand it's a much different world now. Well, let's talk about that. I'm, I'm really curious. Like, I mean, obviously so much has changed, but what are some of the fundamental changes you've seen over the years? You've been in this for how many years now? <laughs> oh, well, over 10. <laughs> in 2023, I can stop paying fees to the law society. So okay. that's 50 years. So <laughs> wow. like all of our all of our world, things have, have changed. When I started, showing a video in court was considered the height of technological advancement, right? right. The digital world has made enormous changes on, on all levels, no doubt about it. The nature of the available evidence, we are in a much more deeply documented world now than we ever were uh, finding out where people were at a precise point in time has never been easier and it's getting easier all the time, Thing, things like that. So that's made enormous change. The most important change that is still coming, and this is known to me and it, it led to my interest in expert evidence is, as someone once said, look, criminal justice process is operationalized through people witnesses, detectives, suspects, lawyers, judges, and jurors. The wheels of the system are turned by the mental operation of these actors, memories, recognitions, assessments, etc., etc. Ever since I started, it's always puzzled me how the law refused to recognize this. The law made assumptions about people that are so wrong that it took me a while to figure out why it was doing this, and it was doing it because of necessity. So, for example, the law assumed that memory was a reliable uh, source of historical information. We know that's a preposterous proposition now, but the law assumed it. The law assumed that jurors would decide things with an open mind based on the evidence. So, for example, in 1976, I argued an appeal called Audi in the Court of Appeal, an appeal that Don Bain sent me, where the trial judge had excluded psychological evidence about the problems with identification evidence, right? Something right. that we take for granted today. And the Court of Appeal said, no, there are no issues that, you know, maybe some case in the future this will be admissible, but no, we don't see it. It took decades for modern psychological knowledge about identification evidence to finally work its way into the system, took several miscarriages of justice, etc. In the late 80s, early 90s, we had the recovered memory hysteria, which was an example of uh, the law initially totally uninformed by modern psychological knowledge about memory, etc., that's not a tape recorder, all the stuff we take for granted now. To get back to where you started about our modern digital age, our jurors now live in this modern digital age where they're bombarded by all kinds of information. That information impacts on them whether they know it or not. And so an area that I see is ripe for modernization is the challenge for cause, that it's time to stop viewing jurors as innocent black boxes who will decide things based solely on the evidence. It's time to recognize human nature, that, that that's just wishful thinking. They are only human, etc. And so that's an area where I think modern experimental psychology is, is going to inform the law. But that's the sort of a, a major development. The system is run 
with and by people. And we now know a lot more of how people actually operate, but it's only slowly creeping in to the legal system. And I wouldn't be surprised in the next couple of decades if the law becomes much more modernized. Right now, there's only islets of improvement. For example, confessions being recorded is an example of the recognition that a policeman's memory of a confession and note-taking, no matter how well-intentioned, no matter how honest the officer is, is simply not going to capture all of the relevant information involved in that transaction between the accused and the police officer. So if I can call it the, the modernization of the system um, based upon modern psychological knowledge, I think is is a, is a, what's developing, and it's due in large part to the digital world we live in, in the sense that the digital world has made it clear how much information is out there now, and the digital world offers a solution because recording, accurate recording of so many things can now take place so that you have a, a better guarantee of accuracy. Other than that, the criminal code when I started was an inch and a half thick. Now it's doubled in size. Uh, the number of rules and regulations is m- life is much more complicated uh, in criminal law. Do you think that you know the the role of the defense lawyer is going to be significantly minimized over you know in the coming years? Because when you look at mm. the massive digitization that happens now, you know when you get a homicide case, you're receiving you know thirty gigabytes of information tracking the suspect's movements minute to minute. You know, are we are we more just going to be almost like a, a curator of the evidence and, and ultimately the conclusion is the same? The fact is that in the majority of cases, the police generally have the right people. So in the majority of cases, the question is is proving it. That has always been defense counsel's role, ensuring that the proving it accurately takes place. So I don't think defense counsel's role is going to be minimized. I think it's going to be much harder because of the amount of information that now has to be verified. Sometimes what looks like circumstantial evidence pointing to guilt does have an alternative explanation. And so defense counsel is there as a safety valve for the client to say, look, they're they're misinterpreting this. This this is the truth, and I'm actually innocent. So that's really the important role defense counsel has always had, and now it's even more necessary because there's now a potential for a much larger amount of information that looks like it helps the police case but doesn't really. Because you have to understand, one of the other lessons from modern psychology is uh, confirmation bias, tunnel vision. The police again, however honest and well-intentioned, do what human beings do. We look for evidence that confirms our theories. It is the hardest thing, given the way our brains work, for us to realize we should be looking for things that disconfirm our theory because only by trying everything to disconfirm it and failing, then you can have confidence in your hypothesis, right? So the police will always find stuff that confirms their theory. It's defense counsel's job, as it were, to defeat tunnel vision, to defeat confirmation bias. It's That's always been the role. Now, it's going to be much harder because of the massive information. In fact, this is an a actual letter 
from the Crown Attorney in Toronto, Henry Bull, a very famous Crown Attorney, and it's dated July 27, 1964, memo to all assistant Crown Attorneys. It's come to my attention that the practice is growing up of showing defense counsel the dope sheet. While this may be all right in circumstances, there have been instances where confidential information has been passed to the defense which should not have been done. I request in future that no dope sheet be shown to defense counsel. This does not preclude you from communicating any information you see fit to do verbally or otherwise by some other means than showing the dope sheet. That was 1964. Now we have a different problem. Right. Uh, I call it the problem, the haystack problem. What happens is the crown gives you the haystack and you're supposed to find the needle in it. So whoever thought lawyers would be worrying about information management and yet, of course, information management is now an enormous part of our, our practice. We get these gigabytes and tetrabytes of information, and we have to work through it, etc. And for many lawyers on a budget, that will in no way be commensurate with what, what needs to be done. I know, but it has to be done. Right. That That's part of the problem. Now, I think institutions like the Criminal Lawyers Association can do certain things in this area. And I, I think there's a, a couple of precedents that have gone in this direction. First of all, some jurisdictions really analyze the disclosure and present it beautifully. I, I just finished a massive case in, in British Columbia. Their production of disclosure makes it so easy to find everything, etc. So I think the Criminal Lawyers Association can lobby that it's the obligation of the Crown to present a disclosure in a manageable form. Don't just give us the haystack. You have to tell us where the needles are sort of thing. And the other principle is this, that if necessary, you apply to the court and say, and this is your complaint, look, the Crown's given me the the haystack. They, they should be forced to tell me whether there's any needles in here or not. Okay, so I think that's that can be part of the solution. But other than that, it's defense counsel's obligation to have the resources to do their cases properly. And if, if they don't, then they shouldn't be taking those kinds of cases. Another thing that, you know, a demand that we've had of defense lawyers as of late is a new sort of narrative that I've seen uh, essentially attack on the presumption of innocence and saying that it has no place outside of the courtroom. General society should not only disregard its significance outside of the court, but should also go as far as to believe complainants before a trial has taken place. So this is a relatively new phenomenon, as I see it. Politicians have always sort of understood the presumption of innocence, the the, the need for due process. And I, I'm curious um, whether you see the same thing. And if so, is there danger in this language? Is this something that can be reversed? Is this something that politicians need to be taking more more pride and maintain the integrity of the justice system? There are some very strong cultural winds blowing. They've been blowing for a long time. Recently, I'd say they've turned into a hurricane in, in certain contexts. And the effect of that has been to make sex cases especially a zero-sum game in the public mind. You know, the genius of the Supreme Court of Canada in the WD case was recognizing le the legitimacy of agnosticism. I don't know what happened here. Crown hasn't succeeded in his burden, not guilty. It is not a judgment against the complainant. But 
our our present culture refuses to recognize that it has become it's either or and it's important for everyone to recognize that but it's important for the legal system and those responsible for the legal system to try and explain the message that the legal system it's not a civil case in which one loses because the other wins the burden is on the crown beyond a reasonable doubt and so therefore not guilty says nothing about what actually happened it simply says one thing that the crown has failed to prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt that message uh, i agree is is being lost in contemporary times uh, for a variety of cultural and political reasons defense lawyers just have to be strong understand that and i think have to always convey that message not be careful not to say things that are insulting things that are that that don't obey that structure and and by that i mean you have to recognize that to the public an acquittal does mean there is a loser you have to recognize that and it's with some justification someone has in fact been attacked someone has in fact been shot you have to recognize that in modern times the system it's not just the accused and the state anymore it's the accused the state and the, and the victim in fact they even use the term victim pre-conviction when it first came in to the criminal code the provision only talked about a victim after conviction it was a complainant up to then and then as the code was amended suddenly the terminology appeared pre-conviction so that always kind of troubled me but it was a reflection you know culture is is upstream from politics and that at the at that time that was a clear indicator of how things were headed that now there were victims pre-conviction and so now it's a tripartite system and defense lawyers have to recognize that so i think defense lawyers should stay on message that the issue in a criminal trial is not either or it's not finding out absolutely what happened there's a single issue is the crown proving beyond a reasonable doubt whatever specific charge they've laid does that mean that's not going to change well it's uh i i shudder to think i hope not i hope i hope the culture doesn't control the political so much that that starts to change but i'm won't be around at that point so you know, I think what defense lawyers have, have relied on in the past in the messaging is a lot of politicians would stand up, you know, 10 years ago and say the matter's before the courts, it's under appeal. And it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems a rather recent phenomena that judges are attacked, juries are attacked, juries. I mean, that that to me was remarkable, especially in the Bushy case, that there was these uh, ideas being floated that they were a racist jury. And it, it's happened very quickly. And I wonder, do you see any counterbalance to that messaging when politicians themselves are jumping in? Those are the times we live in. Once it's done once and there's no repercussions, it'll be done again. The law and contempt of court, when I started, would not have allowed such a thing. Now it's considered fine. What to do about that, I don't know. Those are the times we live in. Those are the public attitudes. Uh, certain opinions have been given preferential status. They've, they've become acceptable when they didn't used to be, that sort of thing. I, I gave a TED Talk 
on this issue at the last Federation of Law Societies by video. And one of the things I said that I, I looked into it and I was surprised to find out, uh, you, you probably know this quote, right? The famous Blackstone Ratio, that uh, it's better that 10 guilty persons go free than one innocent person be convicted of a crime. Well, I did some research, and what I was surprised to find out was that starting in 1886, this was first cited by a Canadian court, I can't find it cited after 1990. And to me, that just reflects the reality of the political situation that we're in. Right. And in fact, in fact, I've seen in, in the things that I read, I've seen commentators, even a legal commentator, say that in the context of a California law, that essentially presume non-consent or something equally invidious. This commentator said, the law is terrible and it can be used to punish people who have not committed rape. And this commentator said, its overreach is precisely its value. Ugly problems don't always have pretty solutions. And other commentators have said, well, some collateral damage in aid of a good cause is not a bad thing. So what they're essentially saying is that the presumption of innocence and proof beyond a reasonable doubt imposes too high a price in the context of sex offenses and the burden should be reduced. And if that increases the number of people wrongly convicted, so what? It increases the number of people properly convicted. That is a part of the political climate, the cultural climate that we now live in. And criminal lawyers have to face that fact. And we just have to do our best to explain to people why the Blackstone Ratio is right. It's morally right. It's factually right. It's right from by any standard that's applied to anything that human beings do. And we have to keep defending it, and we have to try to make politicians understand it. Otherwise, there'll be a criminal code amendment saying that in cases of sexual offenses, the burden of proof is only on a balance of probabilities. So moving to more practical matters that perhaps our listeners will take value in. Um, I see a lot of lawyers take the knee-jerk reaction that clients should not testify. Um, and I imagine your approach is far more sophisticated. And I'm curious what your thought processes are when you evaluate whether a witness should testify or not? Depends on the nature of the case and the nature of the evidence. If you have a good argument without the client testifying, if there's nothing the client can add, then generally you don't call them. On the other hand, sometimes, especially in the sex case, the client testifying and saying, I'm completely innocent, nothing like this happened, again, that might be essential. It, it's, it's very much dependent upon the circumstances of the particular case. How can the client help? How can the client hurt? Mm -hmm. What is your workflow of preparing a client to testify in, let's say, a relatively simple matter? Let's say it's an hour worth of testimony denying a sexual assault. Is there is such a thing as a generalized preparation? No, that? because sometimes, really, what you generally worry about is what can the Crown do in cross-examination? So that's generally where you direct your efforts. Uh, generally, if the client is testifying in a way that will help their case, you generally don't need that much preparation because 
in court, you're the musician, they're the instrument, you play them. So I always ask very short questions. In other words, there's no place for the client to misstep. Okay, you, you essentially are controlling them by proceeding in very, very small steps. So it's the cross-examination that you're really concerned about, and, and that's where you concentrate your efforts. How would you describe your advocacy style? Sharing what my understanding of the issues in the case. This is sort of a lead-up question to another question, and that is, how does a young lawyer find their proper advocacy style? Because you see a lot of younger lawyers trying to emulate you know, people like Eddie Greenspan, and it's just not really fitting right. So what advice would you give people to try and find their groove in the courtroom? Not be yourselves. Okay, let me, let me, so this is, this is a cartoon of a, of a young lawyer pleading in front of a judge. The caption is average courtroom 2025. And the lawyer is telling the judge, my client is like an awesome family man. And the judge says, but he, like, killed five people or whatever. <laughs> Hello? Um, so, no, don't be yourself. The understanding I try and share with, with people that I've, I've mentored, and a lot of them claim that it's been helpful to them, so I'm going to uh, assume that, okay? Because, uh, really, I, I mean, I've had the benefit of working with some, some wonderful people who have gone on to great things. Yeah, there's been a, a whole list. Of, uh, the list I've come up with is uh, Justice Michelle First, Richard Litowski. Well, Michelle was my partner, my partner, one and yes. only partner. She became a wonderful judge. I understand she's doing very, very well. I've appeared before several times, and uh, she is uh, probably the smartest judge I've ever appeared before. She knows her criminal law. Absolutely. Uh, David Tanovich, Jill Presser, Michael Chapre. Craig Perry, Karen Unger, Adam Weisberg, Michael Lacey and Joe Wilkinson, Marie McGuire, Jennifer Gibson, Greg Lafontaine. Wonderful, delightful people to have worked with all of them. What I tell them is, you're playing a professional role. It's as if you're playing Hamlet. Hamlet comes with a preset speech. The lawyer doesn't come with a fully preset speech, but there are certain parts of the speech that are preset. So, that's all you're doing. You're playing a role. You need to know the formalities of that role. You need to know the certain things that must always be said. One of the modern developments that I'm not in favor of at all, of course, is the elimination of the formality in the courtroom. I always start arguments with, may it please the court, may it please your honor, how to end, you know, those are my respectful submissions. You're not supposed to say respectful in factums anymore. Ju judges have now written articles saying, you know, just write as if you're writing, what, a newspaper article. So I I'm not really a fan of that. I think for formalism is good. It's the reason why, you know, private schools have uniforms, why we wear uniforms. It's to eliminate the personal. It's to say this person is one of a kind now, a lawyer. And so you stand up straight, you speak properly, you try and develop a professional language. You're not talking to a buddy in a bar anymore. You're now addressing a court. That's the advice I give. Think of yourself as playing a professional role. So don't jingle keys in your pocket. Don't use sloppy language. I spent a, a large part of time over the years building up a professional vocabulary. English is an absolutely marvelous language. It's so rich in terms that are absolutely perfect for certain concepts. 
And yet young lawyers don't seem to try to build up that kind of vocabulary. They think their ordinary vocabulary is good enough. If you have a good vocabulary, that will make you seem more professional. So my answer is you simply go try and play this role. And over time, you'll fine tune it. You'll find your balance. It's like learning to ride a bike. You'll keep falling off. And and I've said this. I've said this to people. I can recall it was about my third or fourth year of practice. Suddenly, one day, I walked into a courtroom and I was balanced. It was like I'd finally learned how to ride a bike. I felt so comfortable. I had everything under control. And this is the final point. This will only happen if you are fully prepared. If you have not done preparation to make yourself comfortable, you will always have the stress and discomfort of worrying. And so you will never have a good performance. But when you've done everything, you're prepared, you've rehearsed in your own mind, you've uh, looked up the right words for certain concepts, you've written down a good phrase or two that will really make your points, you walk into that courtroom, you'll be fine. Just enjoy yourself. Don't be yourself like you're in a bar, but you will enjoy yourself playing the professional role of a lawyer. What about the professional role with clients? What what tips have you learned in, in managing clients, particularly high-profile clients and clients who are sophisticated? I treat every client as I would want to be treated if I was the client. So I tell them this. I tell them you can be completely selfish. You will not hear from me that I can't do something for you because I'm busy with somebody else. Because if I was the client paying you, I don't want to hear about anybody else. All I care about is my case. So we make sure the clients are always fully informed as to what we're doing. I tell them there's no dumb questions. Uh, Phone me anytime. I'd rather spend a minute on the phone with you and alleviate your concern than have you worrying for hours and getting irritated and stressed and all that. So essentially, we take the time to keep the client fully informed as to what we're doing. And of course, with the decisions that they have to make, how to plead, whether to have a jury or not, we spend a lot of time going over the pros and cons. And then, of course, we finally get written, detailed written instructions in all respects so that there's no issues later on. A question I ask a lot of our guests is, you know, especially someone like yourself who's involved in very intense litigation and not just high stakes litigation in a financial sense, but in a liberty sense. How do you deal with that stress management? Have you, have you learned some tools over the year that you might want to share with me so I can maybe uh, manage myself at times? Or is it just part of the nature of the practice? I ignore it. I can't worry about that because that that will disable me in part. I have to focus on doing the best possible work I can uh, for the client. My position always is that if miscarriage of justice takes place, have I done anything to contribute to that? And if I haven't, then it's the system that has screwed up. As long as I do everything I'm supposed to, I I think of everything, I I work hard, we interview the witnesses, we do everything we're supposed to, then my conscience is clear. Then there's nothing more I could have done, and the system does misfire sometimes. You know, you you mentioned you were in Pinkowski's office, okay? Guy Paul Moran, Mm -hmm. okay? Jack, fantastic job, right? Right. But the system misfired. Why? Because it, it, it didn't have a, an accurate assessment of bogus evidence, right? Uh, because uh, they relied on demeanor. Well, 
that's an, another example of how experimental psychology has a good influence on the law because the research is clear. Demeanor has absolutely no relationship to truth-telling. Uh, confidence has no relationship to accuracy, okay? So, you know, sure, Jack must have been upset losing that case, but it wasn't his fault. He did a magnificent job. The system got it wrong for reasons which were the system's responsibility. So, yeah... A lawyer should not carry the can for that type of a situation, and that's much more common than a, a lawyer not doing their job properly. I, I think the system does misfire, does rely on things it shouldn't be relying, but that, that's a whole separate issue. But, for example, I argued an appeal, you know, that identification evidence witness confidence is, is known to be irrelevant, right? And the jury is told that. Well, I had a, a, a similar situation, but it wasn't an identification case. It was where a vehicle was in relation to the center line. And this witness was sure. Now, remember, this is an instantaneous thing. So I went to the Court of Appeal, and I tried to put forth the proposition that just like an identification case, the jury should have been instructed that this witness's confidence was irrelevant to the accuracy of their perception. Right. No. So that's an example of how it's a good lesson, but the courts are limiting it to a particular context. Maybe in 10 years, it will apply throughout to all contexts, but that's an example. So, like I say, I think it's fair to say that in our cases, we do everything that can conceivably be done. We do them properly. And in that situation, if the outcome isn't favorable, at least our consciences are clear. The outcome may be regrettable but our consciences are clear and it's, it doesn't provide us with stress. So, Mr. Gould, like, wrapping up the podcast, I, I could talk with you all day and I'd like to, but I know you have a very busy practice. Yeah, imagine getting a, uh, getting a lawyer <laughs> to talk about themselves. Wow, what a difficult <laughs> exercise, Sean. So my final question is this. If you could um, either tweak or reverse one Supreme Court of Canada case, <laughs> what would it be? <laughs> Leaving your own client side of it perhaps but let me give you two the cell phone search case i don't understand why our court didn't go the same way as the american court and just require a warrant instead you know there's now a little bit of complexity in the law that's unnecessary and it wouldn't surprise me if in a few years perhaps that's reconsidered but i guess the jordan case yeah yeah i think that i you know there were there are complaints about the number of motions and all that, but things had settled down and, and court, the trial courts seemed to be generally dealing with them in an expeditious fashion and, and things were going along well. And now with these, with these, uh, arbitrary time limits, courts have, I call it Jordan fever. Courts have gotten Jordan fever. And some days the system seems more like, you know, Henry Ford's Model T assembly line in terms of making sure that certain dates are met rather than a system that's administering justice. You know, someone someone once said, well, they didn't say exactly this. They said something close to it, but I'll apply it to our situation that efficiency is a good thing, but justice is a much better thing. I think the system is perhaps starting to lose sight of that a little bit. Right. Swift uh, justice requires more than swiftness. Yeah. F deciding somebody's fate 
why is it surprising there might be speed bumps along the way? It would be astonishing if it was a smooth path from start to finish. It's a, it's a complicated human endeavor, and uh, a few bumps along the way is to be expected. It, it's not a vehicle assembly line. It's a very important human endeavor, really without precedent, to decide whether or not you're going to label someone a criminal, especially now. And that's the other thing that's really changed. The collateral consequences now of a conviction are absolutely astounding to what it used to be. And again, this is part of our contemporary cultural attitude. You know what? I'm actually going to sneak in one more quick question of you, Alan, if you don't mind. And it's a question I ask uh, all of our guests. And I think it's it'd be so valuable to have your insight on this. What advice would you give to a young lawyer who's just starting out their practice? How could they try and become Alan Gold of 2050? Well, the most important thing is... Um, like I say, learning as much as you possibly can. But the other thing is surrounding yourself with, with good people, creating a, a very comfortable professional, uh, environment. So I started, uh, with Michelle first and she became my partner. We always had terrific articling students, uh, tenants. Uh, Bill Horkins was, I think, our first tenant many, many, many years ago. Uh, since then, uh, you've mentioned uh, some of the terrific people that have passed through the office. But I'm I, sure not all of them. No. I think a number, several years ago, I think for my 60th birthday, Michael Lacey, Greg, and uh, Jill, through a reunion of my previous articling students, I think we had 60, 65 people there. Uh, wonderful people. It was a lot of fun. And I have to mention my, uh, my assistant, Cheryl Gafer, who's been with me over 30 years. And uh, she's the one who remembers all the important things that need to be done. <laughs> Recently, um, People that have worked with me, uh, Juliana, who, and uh, Itai, mm -hmm. uh, Hills and Rat, they've now gone out on their own. And one of the things I've told them is don't hesitate to, to get in touch. I'm happy to always be available as a resource for you. So one of the things you can, a uh, young lawyer should do is build relationships with nice people that will be there to provide support and advice when, when you need it, that sort of thing. Make sure you have good resources for your office. Now, in many ways, the digital age is a is an enormous blessing. Uh, when I found out about the internet and all that, I told people, it's like having the Library of Congress in your house. You can get up, if something's bugging you in the middle of the night, you get up and you can uh, look up uh, what year this actress was born. You know, important stuff like that. <laughs> um, but really, so... Make sure you're computer savvy. Have a curiosity. Have a curiosity about everything. Uh, your cases. Don't stop asking questions about the evidence. Why is this way? What about this? What? And the most important thing to do is to learn to see what isn't there. Because remember, the police are only finding things that are helpful to their case. It's it's a lawyer's job to recognize what they didn't do and what isn't there. And that perception of what's missing is is a critical perception for a young lawyer uh, to develop. But other than that, uh, the most important thing, as I say, is is develop relationships with good people. Watch the relationship grow through the years. 
But if you uh, articled somewhere and you had a good relationship with that person, uh, maintain that relationship. Believe me, people like myself never mind getting a phone call, asking a question, asking for a precedent, asking for advice on some issue. We're flattered. We're flattered by the gesture, I assure you. All right. Well, I hope our interview today didn't cause too much of a speed bump in your own day. So. No, no. It was, <laughs> it was a pleasure to talk to you, Sean. And like I say, getting a lawyer to talk about themselves, it's really not that difficult. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Alan Gold. Thanks for listening to this episode of Love Counsel with Alan Gold. Remember, November 30th, his book, The Practitioner's Ontario Criminal Practice, 2019 edition, an essential for criminal law practitioners, is set to be released. If you want to place an order for it and to browse a list of all of the publications authored by Mr. Gold, visit lexisnexis.ca backslash Gold. Lastly, if you have a question for any of our lawyers, be sure to visit robichaulaw.ca backslash podcast question and fill out the form to have your question read or played on the podcast. Ask any of our lawyers anything about criminal litigation, the practice of law, opinions on recent development in criminal law, or the news, or anything else you want to answer. We did this in our last episode with Julie Stancieri, and it was quite a success. And we thank everyone for their questions, and we thank you for listening to this episode of Love Council.